Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James, and each week I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Nick Shackleton-Jones, who's both a senior leader in learning and development, having led functions at BP, the BBC and Siemens, and is also a leading figure in the profession. Nick has a new book out called How People Learn, and it both challenges myths and sheds light on how we should use this knowledge to inform our practice. It's a fascinating and challenging conversation, and I know you enjoy it. So let's get into it. Nick, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, It's rare that somebody can genuinely be called a thought leader, but with both pioneering the shift as well as the language of courses to resources and your effective context model of how people actually learn, I think the title legitimately applies to you. Are you fully aware of your impact on the profession and how does that sit with you? (laughs) I aspire to legitimacy. (laughs) I think it's very kind of you to say that. I think um, thought leader is quite a kind of a charged thing, Mm. isn't it? So I sort of stopped using the term. But a genuine thought leader, how would you you figure out who's a genuine thought leader from a fake one? I think the best that I've been able to um, come up with is if you're not upsetting people, you're probably not a thought leader. Because <laughs> there's a kind of thought leader who kind of says the sort of thing that everybody nods along with. And like, oh, yeah, yeah. And that's more something like a trend chaser. Yeah. But unless people are kind of starting to get a bit annoyed um, with you, you're probably not doing any thought leadership. Um, and so your unpopularity is a measure of your <laughs> success. And I think the other thing, I've never really wanted to impact the profession. It's not in the sense that it's a that's almost a side benefit mm. i've wanted to understand things and really get to the bottom of things not everybody has that feeling about the world mm. a lot of people just want to know what they're doing but but I, i've really always been passionate about really getting to the bottom of things um and if that helps the profession great wonderful and i think that uh, that that leads a nice lead into to what i want to talk about next because uh, first of all, congratulations on your book, Nick. I'd like to, to explore that. It's called How People Learn. Uh, I take it that it's a build on what we already know, that we share a bit of theory in the classroom, that we get to have a go at an exercise to embed it, that we use colourful drawings on the flip chart to accelerate it, and then attendees transfer it back to the workplace. Uh, oh, and we do that several times over the course of a day or two days or three days or however long the programme takes. That's right, isn't it? Uh, oh God, no! That's like every other learning book I've ever bought and read, and I bought I've, I've quite a few. I mean, mm. I'm I'm a bit geeky like that, and I buy you know popular psychology books mm. by people who are doing you know this is revolutionary application of cognitive psychology, and and I pick it up and I realise it was it's the same stuff I was teaching twenty years ago as a psychology yeah. lecturer, and n- n- no, absolutely not. It is um, a book which says forget all of that stuff. Um, you know, it's it's bureaucracy. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, I, I guess maybe put it, imagine a parallel universe where when you've got some sort of performance issue in a business, you bring in the aromatherapy team, yeah. right? And the aromatherapy team um, come in and, uh, uh, and they do a little bit of analysis and then they spray you with some kind of scent. And they say, well, what do you think of that? And you say, oh, thank you. That's very nice. Mm. And then you kind of go away and for, um, for a day or so, you kind of smell a little bit like that. Uh, but you go back to work and nothing changes. Um, I think we created that that kind of a world mm. in our universe. Um, we've we've just called it kind of education. And so every other book you read is about education. This is not a book about all of that stuff and that weird bureaucracy and spraying people with stuff that yeah. doesn't you know last. This is a, 
a book about learning and about how the world would change if you actually understood learning, how our practices would change, how education would change, how your life would change if you mm. actually understood how, how learning is happening to you. Can you imagine how your world would be different if you'd have read this book 20 years ago before perhaps or as you were entering learning and development? <laughs> That's a really good question. I don't, I'd like to think for people entering the world of learning and development that it, it was an antidote to the weirdness the bureaucracy because a lot of people have that experience they enter learning and development and they're like wow this is really odd mm. why do you do this and um, say no, 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 it's fine this is what we do in learning and development yeah. and and i think hopefully they'll read this and they'll think you know i was right this is weird we, we shouldn't be doing this it's it's bananas um and it'll stop them doing it hopefully and yeah i i like to think that if i'd read this book i could have gone off and understood something else perhaps <laughs> well let's dig deeper into into this book I, I i'm hoping that as a result of this conversation um people will 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 buy the book and uh, and spend the time that that i certainly have enjoying it um but let's start off um and to quote you from your book the starting point for the design of any environment designed to help people learn must be the individual and those things that matter most to them this and only this forms the basis of their learning this kind of makes a mockery of most training and e-learning, doesn't it? That starts from a place of, we need you to know this. Yeah, um, it does. Um, I guess the expression that I use, which is slightly, slightly mocking, mm. um, to describe this activity is content dumping. Yeah. And we only put up with it because we're familiar with it, because this is what happens at school, right? You know, mm. you sit in one place and somebody just kind of batters you with information and then you have some kind of test that you have to pass that you get a bit anxious about. Yeah. And we all know that doesn't work. Um, oh, no, you know, it's got a red flag. Nick said that school doesn't work. Um, well, uh, uh, generally, it, does, it doesn't because the vast majority of it you forget. There's a kind of a use it or lose it model, which we're fairly familiar with. And I don't remember very much in terms of kind of algebra or chemistry or geography or mm. stuff. And these things don't relate to my life. If they did, then maybe school could have worked. If it was a, a set of subjects on you know, how to manage politics at work or, or how to look good in meetings or yeah. how to craft the perfect email, then I would have gone on to apply some of that. Um, but it's a horribly ineffective model. And as soon as we leave school in real life, we, we learn naturally. And that is just the process. We hit a problem. And what do we do? We Google it. Mm. So this morning, I didn't know how to get to this location. So I looked it up on Google Maps. There's the answer. Off I go. So our challenges drive our learning it really is that simple and so what's so perverse about that educational model the corporate educational model is it's not focused on the challenges that people have mm. we're not you know understanding what problems have you got and then helping people with those problems instead we're just battering them with information every bit of research tells us that's grossly ineffective but you know it's bureaucracy now it's what we do so we just kind of carry on um so yeah so logically we i completely get this um and I have the conversations similar to that. I mean, when it comes to, to digital learning, which is the conversation that I have uh, a great number of conversations about, uh, and talking about how uh, appealing to the genuine concerns of people rather than uh, just projecting content at them via e-learning is a far more effective way of doing so. But I'm always then challenged back with, but they do actually just need to know it. <laughs> which, which, again, it's, it's almost... You used the word perverse earlier in this. It, it's a it's a perverse logic in that I know that doesn't work, but they do just need to know it. Mm. I mean, it's yeah. it, it's it, it is 
a, a bizarre game of uh, of tennis sometimes with with rationale and reason. Yeah. So um, let me let me explain how that that works. If somebody really did need to know something, and I accept the legitimacy of that mm. for a whole variety of reasons, the only way you would get them efficiently to just know it is to find out what they care about today. Mm. And I'll give you a real example. I was when I was working in oil and gas, I went to one of the refineries. And everybody had a picture of their family yeah. on the desk. And and if you look closely at these pictures, they would have signed it. And they said, this is why I stay safe at work. Now, it wasn't me that designed this program, but the person who did was very smart because they realized you may just need to know a whole bunch of stuff about safety. But unless we understand what you really care about, you're not going to remember any of this. Mm. So they figured out quite rightly that a lot of people... They may be a bit macho. They may have a disregard. They may be kind of all kinds of workarounds that have become normal practice. But what they really care about actually is their family. They have um, a family to go back to. And if something happened to them at work, that would really impact their family. And making them form that connection between what they care about and what they don't is critical to encoding. If if you and I go on a journey, a train journey, and it's an example I've used before. And, um, you know, I care about plants and you care about architecture. Those are the things you're going to remember. Mm. You encode that information because you care about it. And because you care about it, you react to it. And so, yeah, there may be stuff you just need to know. But, you know, how are you going to make people care enough about that to remember it is mm. the question then. So, Nick, in your words, again, to quote you from uh, your book, learners who are subjected to a barrage of information that they perceive as irrelevant, for example, not on the test or not related to their job, will be more likely to forget it. So for this very specific reason, learner centricity must be placed at the heart of any educational design process. Now, learning and development professionals are likely to be listening to this and say, they've done this for years when translating business needs into learning needs and defining then the learning objectives. But how is what you're talking about different to this? Yeah, it's a it's a funny question because you right, people will say, oh yeah, of course we always put the learners at the and you say, what do you do? You do a training needs analysis. Mm. Yeah, well, hang on, I think I can spot the problem. <laughs> Nobody needs training, so but your training needs analysis is only ever going to answer. You know, this is the training people need. It's mm. what, what's your training need? It assumes the answer that you're looking for. Now, if you can contrast that, as I sometimes do with marshmallow needs analysis, you could very easily, as an organisation, hire a team of marshmallow deliverers and they would say well first order of the day is to do a marshmallow needs analysis you go around find out how many marshmallows do you need and people say oh uh, i don't know nobody asked that before i don't know maybe five maybe 50 what's the options and you'd come back with a like a heat map mm -hmm. of marshmallow needs in the organization and you say right now let's set about delivering this as efficiently as possible and you might think that this sounds ridiculous but this is exactly what we're doing mm -hmm. so your training needs analysis nobody needs any training because it wasn't they didn't need it unless until you asked them about it mm -hmm. what they needed was to do stuff yeah and we assumed that training was the solution to that we assumed that, oh, if you're trying to, you know, improve performance or whatever, then definitely do some training. That'll be the answer. But every bit of research tells us it's grossly inefficient. Mm. So what should you be doing is really simple. It's just find out what people are trying to do and why, and then build stuff that helps them. Yeah. Don't bring all the kind of the baggage into it, learning objectives, because it's all based on this corrupt knowledge dumping, kind of content dumping model. Just take the time to do an analysis which says what do people care about because that's what's driving their learning yeah and what tasks are they having to do because that's where you can help them and so the 
to finish the, the question I would ask somebody if they said, no, we do that already, is I would say, right, well, tell me, what are the top 20 concerns that your audience have? What are the top 20 tasks that they're doing on a daily basis? And if they, if they say, oh, but, 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 but we didn't collect that, mm. there's your problem because your theory drives the data you collect. Um, and they'll say, well, that's your theory, Nick. That's why you're, yeah, absolutely it is. But if it's not a good theory, you won't get anything decent to go on. And so just going in search of training needs is not proper kind of user design. In my experience, first of all, I, th- I completely agree. And in my experience, I, I, I'm seeing that fear and uncertainty drive the existing behavior. First of all, the, uncer- the fear around, well, if you ask people what they need, it's when does that stop? If you have an organization of 30,000 people, there are going to be thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of concerns. I don't really want to open that can of worms. And then the uncertainty of, well, if we ask people, we not, might not be able to serve it. So it seems that the madness perpetuates that that we take uh, or we we ask a question to try to, um, to recognize a, a business need or a performance need, shall we say, very quickly, we turn that into a training need or a learning need. In that translation, it's my perspective then that that's where learning and development misalign straight away. Mm. We, we hear it all the time in networking meetings or, or on forums. How can learning and development align better to the business? Well, the first thing to do is solve their real problems, not translate them into your solutions, which yeah. is the learning needs analysis. But at that stage as well, if you th- again, you're thinking about this organization of 30,000 people. Um, once you've collected your your learning needs after after translation, you need to aggregate them to common needs. So you take them up to a level of abstraction. So you're looking at Sandra, who's having difficulty managing business as usual with projects. You're looking at Simon, who is currently overwhelmed and is stressed because of his current workload. You're mm. looking at, at hundreds of other people yeah. with similar needs and saying, well, that's time management. Then what you do is you develop a standardised program or solution which will either neatly fit into one day or 45 minutes depending on whether it's face-to-face or it's e-learning and then it's sent out it's been distorted to such an extent it's practically useless once it lands again this is why big organizations fail because Mm. they've created supply chains and systems which serve them but not the customer Um, And I'll I'll come to your specific point, but the general model you see in lots of areas like Just Eat, really interesting. Mm. So they don't own any restaurants, but they have an app, just makes it really easy to order pizza because as a customer, you don't give a stuff where it comes from. You just want the pizza to be there in a certain time, the right pizza, whatever. And, but from a supply perspective, every company has its own website and its own configuration and its own login. And so if you want to order a pizza, you've got to go four or five different places. We've done this with organizations. We've said, we've got a leadership academy, you know, we've got this a safety academy, whatever. We're all going to push out our content. But from a user's perspective, it's horrendous. It's just a mishmash of stuff, none of which actually directly relates to anything that you're trying to do. So this idea of user centricity mm. is fundamental. The problem is that the model we have today basically just perpetuates the bureaucracy it exists to serve us the people doing the jobs yeah. um not the not the people doing the actual jobs in the business mm. um it's just an easy way for us to kind of um gather you know training content and kind of push it out um so the the difference has to be made the, the first thing in answer your question is or, or audience segmentation it's kind of marketing thing mm. but you know um instead of just pushing out content generically find out 
who are your audiences mm. and what are those groupings? So a typical grouping is transitional. Yeah. So you'll find that although you're absolutely right, different people have different concerns. If you're a new starter, pretty much there's going to be a bunch of shared concerns. Like you want to fit in. You don't want to screw up. You want to look good. You want to start making a difference. Typically you want to meet people and you can catalog by using focus groups and other kind of research methods the concerns and tasks that people have, have had. Now, this is a real example, and I guess people would like, quite like us not just to talk in the abstract. Mm. When I joined um, BP, there were eight hours of e-learning modules, and I owned them, and they were horrendous. Yeah. Um, and so the first thing I did is kind of diligent, you know, learning managers, look at the utilization, the usage of them. Only 300 people had ever completed in the four-year history these eight hours of e-learning modules. They're supposed to be mandatory. Yeah. We had 6,000 people joining a year. So what we did... Instead, as I said, scrap all that. We're going to go and talk to new starters. Nobody had ever thought to do that. Actually talk to new starters and say, what can we help you with? What did you struggle with? And we'll just build useful stuff. And interestingly, their concerns would range from the really soft focus, like, I just want to fit in. I want to know how people dress. Yeah. What should I wear? Or, you know, to the really tight tactical ones, like, I just need to get my laptop up and running, or I need to get my emails on my device. How do I do that? Or I need to get my Amex card. Yeah. And we just built simple resources that help people with the job. We had a million hits to that site. It was the, the most popular site anywhere in the organization. And everybody then started to kind of copy it with their own sites. And so that simple idea of putting the user at the heart of the design process can be transformational. Mm. But as you say, we're afraid of it because we're trapped in this kind of bureaucracy and way of working. And what I found doing similar exercises is that there is there are uh, high level primary concerns that are mm. common and they're predictable in a yeah. lot of transitions as you yeah. say that can be as predictable and uh insightful as with new managers uh, who are promoted to a role asking the question what do i do first and you have to yeah. think oh my god that that question is riddled with anxiety here yeah. you've got you've got one person who was the font of all knowledge on friday yeah. they've been in the role for 5 years and they were a true expert when they come back into work on monday they're going to know next to nothing they're not going to know the expectations yeah. of their team they're going to sit there and they're going to wonder what the job is yeah. so what do they do first? I love that example yeah. because and uh, I've done, found exactly the same with mm. leaders and um, built lots of different leadership transitional solutions. One of the things you find time and time again is the most popular thing is a checklist. Yeah. And you might think, wow, is that, you know, the rest of the industry is off trying to make things engaging and video and interaction. Why is a checklist the most downloaded yeah. asset? And it's because exactly as you say, their concern is, holy crap, I'm a new leader. I've not got a clue what I'm doing. Their confidence will nosedive mm. unless they have a step-by-step, -step, right, this is what you should do. This is what, oh, right, okay, I feel like I know what I'm doing now. I'm following, you know, the, the right set of processes. And it's because it's driven by their concerns. Mm. And so you're absolutely right. It, you know, that, that can be transformative and it's not about razzmatazz or interaction, just about meeting the needs of the learner. And I think that to, to, to build on that as well is when you don't get to people in time, to, to service their yeah. needs, of course, you're not going to get engagement. So if yeah. you'd have gone to that manager in six months, nine months to a year, they would have found ways. First of all, you weren't there to tell them what to do first. Yeah. So they've found their shortcuts and they've found their ways of doing things, which may be right or wrong, yeah. but they're getting them results or they're getting away with it, depending on mm. uh, how... Uh, they have then uh, pursued their own goals and perhaps the support that, that they've gained. But when you don't get to people in time and yeah. your primary measure of success is engagement, of course, you're looking at then and thinking, yeah, so people aren't going to it at the moment. How do we make it more engaging? Yeah. I know, we'll animate it. And yeah. what we'll do is we'll put 
um, drop boxes in so we can drop box in and then reveal boxes so that it's a bit more engaging and then we won't be then we won't um then we'll gamify it um so we'll give them points so we drop so there are all these things that are masking the real problem which yeah. is you weren't there when those people needed it now you've lost your opportunity and it really doesn't matter what you do with that stuff they're yeah. gone i think there's a thoroughly accurate analysis of the problem and i think mm. just to to build some more practical advice into this i guess which is useful we found in our work that there are two things really that make for successful resources. Mm. Um, one is utility. They have to be genuinely useful yeah. and they won't be genuinely useful unless you've really taken the time to understand what challenges that audience faces. But the second thing, which I think you're, you're pointing out is they have to be super accessible mm. because people always take the easiest route. And I've seen organizations who built brilliant resources, um, short videos, checklists, all this kind of stuff. And because they've procured some horrendous LMS system, they felt duty bound to bury those resources somewhere on this grotesque, you know, monster of a, of a system. And they're, they're like, well, nobody's using them. I wonder why. Because it's easier to ask Bob. Yeah. Bob's right there. Yeah. You know, if, if the resource isn't available at the point of need on your mobile device, forget it. You know, because there'll always be an easier route to get an answer. You may Google the answer. A lot of people are now in work, you know, just Googling their way to... Uh, to the answer yeah or asking bob or, yeah. or or whoever's around um now what you're describing here and you mentioned in the book that the that this shift from learning and development seeing themselves as educators to those who look for to recognize and understand concern can make them nervous mm. so what how how should people make this I mean, like the conversation like from the conversation we just had there you could say we well, just need to ask people but there is I'm looking to address the anxiety within here. There's a shift in role. A lot of learning and development professionals have identity wrapped up in what they do. They are educators. Mm. So how, how do you talk to them about this shift from educator to concern investigator? What would, what would you say? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, I think a lot of it has to do with conventions. You know, we've started laughing at learning styles, you know, which is a good thing because mm. it's, you know, but we're very quick to forget that for a couple of decades that was presented, that was the cornerstone of, of instructional design. And that was presented as the scientific approach. Mm. And so it's worth stopping to question, why did people love that so much? And it was because it gave them that air of professionalism of, and credibility. So I'm painfully aware that it's not enough for me simply to say, you know, all this stuff is is rubbish, you've got to stop doing it. Mm. Um, it's just disconcerting for people. You've got to have another raft to jump to. So we have to be able to codify the practices, the approaches, which is why I talk about things which sometimes are quite boring, like the 5DI model for, mm. whether it's mine, Kathy Moore has a good model as well, but, you know, user-centered design so that people have something they feel they can shift to. You yeah. can't just burn down somebody's house and not have somewhere else for them to go mm. so i think some of what i'm trying to do is to build up the conventionality of this because i think most people won't feel secure in a set of of practices and kind of approaches um rather than having to worry about what i worry about which is kind of the philosophy and the theory and everything that goes behind it and what i would generally say to people as well is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. you probably want to experiment with this and uh, gain some currency within your organization for a shift that that you're or a journey you're going to be taking them on our stakeholders mm. are as indoctrinated as we are in expecting that training. Well, expecting that training is going to be the uh, the answer. Uh, 
training is going to be something that they can ask for and then get. It's a, I always compare that to uh, American football, where they are the quarterback and they're the, yeah. the stakeholders holding the ball. They send learning and development off down to the other end of the pitch, and then they throw them this ball, and it stays up in the air, and they think, right, <laughs> yeah. that's that dealt but, with for a little while. I think this that whole thing is such a mess, because <laughs> you, you're right, but what are they asking for? I don't even think they're asking for training. Mm. Um, I think they're asking for one of two things, which is... Um, a bit of an away day or compliance. Yeah. So I give you a terrible story, one which really stopped me in my tracks. When uh, I was working in a big company um, and we had a big initiative around change leadership. And I did my level best to build a change leadership program which would really shift capability and performance. And by that, it was project-based. So you actually had to work on a real project, which meant we could evaluate the impact and the ROI. There was a community element to it. So you could kind of learn from others. Um, it was kind of flipped classroom model, digital elements, all kinds of, of uh, you know, stuff. We presented this to the, you know, the, the head of um, what well, it was change leadership. And, and the guy said, mm, yeah, you know what? I think just people just want a couple of days off the job. And in that moment, I realized, yeah, you think you're <laughs> cynical. And I think a lot of business people, that's what all you think yeah. we really do is a couple of days off the job, you know, a nice lunch, hotel somewhere else, chance to chat. And um, maybe they're right. Yeah. Maybe that's all we were ever doing. And we kidded ourselves that we were shifting performance mm. and, you know, knowledge and stuff. But our, some of our clients, and that's why they don't want e-learning. Because yeah. they're like, no, that's not what you do. You do the away days. Yeah. But yeah. there's nothing wrong. Do you know what? And I, I have this conversation with people. There's nothing wrong with helping people feel good about work. Yeah. And if you're taking them yeah. away. But the only problem is, let's not pretend it's something else. Exactly. <laughs> it's it's a lot cheaper as well. That yeah. If you just take people away, you have a conversation either about work, around work, or not about work. But let's not pretend And there, this is the beauty of it. Is there are people <laughs> who kind of get that. Savvy people working at L&D. Yeah. Jane Hart, for example, has you know consistently done a brilliant piece of research, Voice of the Learner, that shows mm -hmm. that... One of the biggest benefits, well, learners hate e-learning for starters, but one of the biggest benefits that they actually recognise is the networking from these sessions. Mm. And we sort of, some of us sort of know that. And so, well, um, there's huge benefit in getting people together to share stories and to talk about their experience. And we will have been doing that to some extent, but let's just have some legitimacy around it. And if that's what we're really doing, let's not, you know, kind of batter people with PowerPoint presentations when we have the opportunity to have some really valuable time together to to talk about what they think, mm. to share experiences and to learn from each other. Yeah. Now, your, your book isn't all about revelations and challenging everything that learning and development does. There's language in there that people will recognise, like push and pull learning. Yeah. But what perhaps they will, will become more aware of as they read your book is what we often get wrong with these approaches. Now, you describe push approaches as ways you can transfer effective significance to people rather than learning. What do you mean by that? Yes. So they'll be familiar with the idea of push and pull, <clears throat> but this is a kind of a theoretical model that underpins it. Now, I have interesting conversations with people about whether or not you need a theoretical model, because of course people built bridges mm. before there was physics. So why do you need physics? Why not just do a trial and error? Um, and I, I have some you know, respect for that position. But I do think that the problem is that without a decent theoretical underpinning for what you're doing, um, you just fall victim to superstition and ritualized practices. So you end up doing things just because sake of doing them, it becomes bureaucratic. So what does push and pull mean? Well, at the heart of the book is the idea that, or the effective context model, 
which is that we don't remember anything that happens to us. We actually encode our reactions to what happens to us mm -hmm. and we reconstruct um, our experience from those reactions. Um, and it's the first general model of learning. And by general model of learning, I mean it applies to kind of animals as well as humans, to kind of formal context, to education as well as, you know, say corporate education, to research as well as um, what happens in the field. Um, and people might say, well, Nick, that's kind of a big claim. I and mean, what about behaviorism? That's a you know, pretty general theory. But if you take something like behaviorism as a model, um, it doesn't explain cognitive states but by definition. Um, and as a consequence, whole areas like observational learning are kind of left out. So the effective context model is supposed to um, underpin all learning phenomena for creatures in a variety of contexts. The push and pull only comes in because when you store your reactions to things, um, you react to things that you care about. When you and I are, are, are both infants, we have a pretty closely aligned set of cares. We, we, we care about symmetrical faces or certain sounds. But as we age, we develop a quite idiosyncratic set of concerns, things that we care about. You care about some things that I don't. I care about some things you might care about, wine and whatever. And then when you go places, you remember different things yeah. because what you care about governs what you react to. Now, the way that this intersects with push and pull is that in learning, you're only ever in one of those two situations. You, you do some analysis and you either find that somebody really cares about something and then they will pull. And this is why we Google. You Google, I Google. It's like, just give me the stuff because I, I have the concern. I care about this information. So I will encode it um, because I'll have a reaction to it, even if it's quite dull to other people. And I pull information. Or you discover that people don't care about GDPR or, you know, um, inclusivity or, or coaching. And there you have to make them care. You have to build on what they already care about and create a new set of concerns. Why? Because once they care about something, they will pull. Yeah. So a simple example would be a kid who loves Minecraft will buy an encyclopedic volume, a resource, and they will pull all the information from that document because they care. Yeah. But, you know, your first challenge is to get them excited by the game. Once they're in, then they'll pull. Mm. So the two things very much go kind of hand in hand. So going back to the example that we talked about earlier, I'm a brand new manager. I, I leave my job today as a as a core contributor and I start my job on Monday as a as a new manager mm. I have genuine concern we we talked about unpacking those like yeah. what what do I do first uh, how do I make a good first impression um how do I have tricky conversations with my team uh, how do I manage somebody who doesn't like me you know there, there's genuine stuff in there yeah, driven yeah. by emotion which I think that that, that you make a, a, a strong case for throughout your book that there is no such thing as the rational mind and then feeling somewhere else that it's all intertwined somehow because we are all one one thing and uh, and, and attempts to to separate the two over time have probably been our as I say, our, I can't take all responsibility, humankind's uh, way of trying to make sense of, of this. And I think we've probably come full circle and considered, you know, we are we are one being. But then on the other hand, if we haven't got new managers, we've got established managers. They've been in the role for at least five years. Uh, we've got a leadership program that they can go on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's quite popular because we take them away to Burbank and, and, and this, that and the other. But what are they concerned about? Are yeah. they still concerned about trying to be the best manager they can be or are they considering the next step up and thinking, well, I've been in this role for far too long? You know, what would, 
what what does generating concern in in a population like that mean mm. or or uh, perhaps more broadly what would your approach be to to perhaps established managers and leaders so it's a really good point um some of the people listening to this will say oh it just kind of sounds like performance consulting and i have very high regard for performance consulting because i had the pleasure to meet people like nigel harrison and to follow people like kathy moore and so on and that will take you much further than the conventional kind of content dumping approach because mm -hmm. performance consulting says start with an analysis of the jobs to be done basically yeah but where i the theory helps that because it underpins that is the tasks that people are doing are driven by the concerns that they have mm -hmm. so as a new manager there are of course a whole series of tasks that you have to do and it's great if you can create resources but if you don't understand that a new manager is really concerned and the reason they're doing these tasks is they want to look good yeah. and do the right things and show up in the right way there's a whole area of that learning that you'll miss yeah. you won't understand why they really want to see videos of other managers and see how people dress or they want to see what locations look like because you'll just be thinking about it at the task level so concerns underpin tasks but your question was you know, how do you build new concerns you know with a big audience um and i often see organizations struggle with this because somebody at the top will say innovation is really important to our company That's right. we need an innovation program and you'll see somebody does a town hall on innovation. They'll play some snazzy video. And the faces of people watching that think, oh, God, here we go again. And it's because nobody has taken the time to really understand what matters to people. Those yeah. people might just want to go home at 5 p.m. and see the family. or uh, And without that, you're not going to be able to build new concerns. You have to build them on the old ones, yeah. on, on the existing ones. Um, and that's true whether you're doing education, public education, or whether you're doing corporate education. You have to start by understanding what people care about. And a good teacher will do that. They'll get to know students. They'll say, well, you know, you you really care about football. So let me explain maths, you know, how, how to bend a ball and how the, the physics or the mathematics of that works. And all of a sudden, they're interested. And I've had that experience. I've been a teacher. And I've noticed that students will suddenly pick up where something relates to to their lives, mm. to something that matters to them. Um, so I think that's the answer to your question. I think delving deep into your response there, um, you, you mentioned there about students. And one thing that, that strikes me, and I've, I've had these conversations on social media, uh, is that, that people who attend programmes and hit the LMS don't see themselves as students or learners. Mm. They, they, they are driven by their own concerns. Uh, your book... Uh, to quote your book again, it says, there are no learners because people are generally trying to get something done and learning is a way to do that. You know, that that for me opens up huge opportunities and thinking, oh, wow, if we're not seeing them as students and learners, we can influence them with what they're trying to do in the flow of work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah, get excited, yeah. but but yeah, I get challenged yeah. a lot of the time. And one a common challenge is, well, aren't we all learners? Mm. <laughs> what's your response to that oh yeah i mean this is this is so interesting, exciting <laughs> and interesting because yeah i've said before learning referring to people as learners is like referring to people as breathers mm. it's just weird because actually um people just want to get stuff done as you say if you if you you talk to people in the business um generally you say what are you trying to do i'm trying to do this that the other and learning is just something like breathing that happens in pursuit of that but the other interesting thing is quite often if there's an easier way learning doesn't happen at all 
Um, and I think this is the point that you were making, is it once you understand that, it opens you up to whole ways of influencing and supporting people's performance that you didn't see before because you're obsessed with learning. A good example, an example I use often is the underground map. Fantastically useful thing. The, the guy who created that is absolutely genius and has, has saved you know, people enormous amounts of time. It, on a daily basis, it helps me to get from A to B, a measurable way to improve my performance. But it acts by reducing my need to learn. You know, performance support often does. Performance support is often learning elimination. This kind of horrifies people. It's like, yeah. oh, well, uh, you know, our job is learning. and But performance support will shift performance and will quite often eliminate learning. And this is where we start to separate because... There, there are a lot of people who've got this idea of learning in the flow of work, and it's been around uh, for a while. Harold um, Jarke, I think, has been talking about it for decades. Mm. But people are starting to think that's micro-learning. Yeah. That's horrendous. It's like, well, you just take the stuff that didn't work before and chop it chop it into ever small, smaller pieces. It's like micro-content dumping. Yeah. And, and that's fundamentally different. That is not learning in the flow of work. Um, that's just kind of force feeding people um, in the flow of work. You know, it's like making it rain wherever you are. There's no hiding from it. Um, but yeah, performance support can eliminate learning, improve performance, um, um, but helps people to do what they're trying to do. It's mm. not just about obsessing around storing stuff in your head. And that going back to if we can challenge our own preconception that we are educators rather yeah. than than really interested in addressing the concerns of the people that we work with then we can find ways to help them because yeah. the useful stuff will just be generated in order to to do just that yeah that's a really good summary of it because i think that the assumption has been that we're there to help people perform in the business mm. but the way we do that is training yeah you just take that out of the equation and say well, no we're there to help people perform in the business and we can do that by creating useful stuff um whether or not they learn is up to them mm. because you know they say it's like breathing um but we can just help people to do their jobs that's um uh, will align us with the business to use the jargon um but it will open up a whole world of activity around the creation of kind of performance support resources and so on that we weren't really touching before now josh bursin and bob mosher are advocating learning in the flow of work and bob who was a pioneer in performance support now states that the term itself is too limiting and that we can achieve more than just supporting performance but lead as a, a development method with the right stuff at the right time are we talking about redesigning learning and development its aims its tools and its activities um yes um i, I think he's right obviously bob has um driven that kind of performance support agenda for a while and i think a language can become you, uh, like a weight around your neck eventually it comes to mean the opposite of what you originally intended so every so often i think changing the language um is helpful so i i, I think we are talking about redesigning what l d do and i think it is redesigning in two directions it's shaping up in two ways one is about creating resources um which is my preferred term mm -hmm. um, because it takes it away from you know so i think some of the baggage yeah um, and the other is around experience design um, one is very much um, responding to challenges and the other is creating challenges. And I think that's really the simplest way to kind of break it down. Our learning is pretty much driven by challenges. Mm -hmm. It's slight oversimplification, but it's driven by challenges. You know, we're trying to get stuff done, so we'll Google it. You know, I, I need to know when to plant petunias or how long to bake brownies. I Google it, I look it up. That challenge is driven by learning. But we don't just have to respond to the challenges people have. We can create new ones, which is where things like simulation and... Um, 
and gamification, if, if, if you like that, sort of come in where we can create a challenge which gives people a chance to practice, which feels like the real thing. Yeah. So in my practice um, within, you know, within PA Consulting, those are the two kinds of activity that we do sometimes together, um, sometimes apart, either focusing on the kind of creating resources that are integrating the flow of work or creating experiences which feel like work. They feel real. You, you're really having to do something that, um, that feels like a part of your job, but is a safe space to fail, if you like. Um, so, yeah. Okay, Nick. So say we eliminate learning and make our organizations more usable. How do we prepare for the end of civilization? Now, I'm not being facetious here. Mm -hmm. Many of us are scared that making things too easy will have a, say, catastrophic consequence for us all. Or is this a myth perpetuated by those wedded to the status quo? I think there's a lot of people who have no clue what's actually happening. I mean, mm -hmm. I sit in conferences and I think you, you just cannot see the trend because the trend is very clear. We are eliminating learning in the interest of making everything more usable and a better user experience. If you don't understand how these, those things fit together, you're going to be caught off guard. So um, a simple example would be, you know, you no longer have to grow your own food. You can buy at the supermarket. Or you don't have to buy at the supermarket. You know, you can order it online. And you no longer have to order online. You just say to Alexa, you know, get me a pizza. And what that does is it eliminates whole knowledge domains or, or areas where people have to kind of learn along the way in the pursuit of an easier experience for you. And we're doing this within organizations for a very good reason. And this is where AI is going to play, mm -hmm. is it dramatically reduces your resource model. Because if you need to have highly competent people, especially in a fast moving environment, you're constantly investing as a highly paid skilled people and so on. If you can simply eliminate that, by having, you know, hybrid working, uh, kind of AI support. And we're seeing this already in legal. We're going to see it in, in white-collar jobs as well. It's not just the kind of the low. Then you can pay basically a 12-year-old to do any job. Mm. That's ultimately what it means is somebody, and you might think that's a crazy idea, Nick. That's what we're doing mm. with driving. We've already seen how that works. You know, black cab drivers used to have not a lot of knowledge, could command a certain salary. You stick a device in the car which says, turn left, turn right. Now, anybody can drive and do the job. And where's that going to go? Pretty soon, you won't need a driver. It'll yeah. become automated. And anybody who doesn't see that the writing is on the wall for a whole swathe of jobs, for very good philosophical and business reasons, is just kind of deluding themselves. So it, will it be apocalyptic? Um, yeah, kind of. I think there will be sort of this, the, the squeezed middle um, model. So there will be a tiny fraction of very highly skilled, well-paid kind of jobs um, in a, a range of areas which might be technical or creative or whatever. And then a vast swathe of low-paid jobs where you just sit in the seat and do what the AI, AI kind of tells you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's if you're lucky. Um, and so, uh, I, I, yeah, I, 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 I don't like that necessarily that future. I wonder how it's going to work. But ideas like, um, there's a guy called Martin Ford who's written a book called Rise of the Robots, which is really well-researched and argued, talks about the introduction of universal basic income, mm -hmm. which is one possible solution, because if nobody's got jobs, who's going to be buying anything? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it is really interesting. Um, uh, what, what do you think? Oh, good question. I think that um, progress is inevitable. I think that we have, in learning and development, some practices and... Uh, beliefs that that are long past their sell-by date and I think that we hold on to a lot of this stuff and we continue to do them because we're expected to and we quite like it but I think that that by ignoring 
progress in the way that we've described it the, and, and letting technology do a lot more of the heavy lifting, then we're going to find ourselves redundant. I think that in the short term, the onset of HR and people analytics that is accessible to leaders will accelerate the change of learning and development and probably HR more broadly. Mm, as yeah. people say, what, are you, what impact are you having with the stuff that you're doing? And why aren't you working on these critical points of failure? A lot of people will be looking and thinking, well, I, I do run a course on that, or I, I, I would do if I, if I had the time, but I'm running these courses mm. and administering the, yeah. the LMS. So I think that, that we do need to pay attention to all of this stuff in the, in the shorter term. I am optimistic about the, the short to midterm of, uh, of the use of, of technology. I think it will elevate our status. I think we'll be less coordinate, coordinators and order takers as a result. I think we will truly impact performance and results by getting closer to the point of work mm -hmm. and influencing the way that, that people uh, think about their role, uh, assimilate into a role and transition and progress through an organization, I think that there are huge opportunities. As for where the world is going, again, I think I am ultimately optimistic that with um, solutions such as universal uh, basic income, there, there will be opportunities for, for us to find new ways of living and working, but there's always short-term pain within that. I hope, I definitely think that learning and development will be disrupted. I hope that it will be disrupted from within the profession, but if learning and development aren't prepared, then inevitably it will it will come from outside. I think to use examples, and I agree. I think the the immediate future for L and D is incredibly promising mm. if we can just let go of some of the old um, ways of thinking. Because I think it's really clear to me now that the future, in the medium term at least, is performance guidance systems. Yeah. So you want anybody to be able to um, start a job and have an app or whatever it is. It might be a headset that basically tells you, do this, do this, so that you can ensure a high degree of performance from day one. Mm. And you can do that with leaders. We've pretty much built that app um, in one of my previous organizations, which will tell a leader what to do. So regardless of level of competence and experience, they perform you know, as a high-performing leader. The bit that we're just missing at the moment, and I think you and I are in a similar place because we have sort of lots of kind of resources, is the contextual information mm. because it's context which takes something from being a resource to a performance guidance system because you know, your sat-nav in your car doesn't just have all the maps you need. It actually knows where you are and it says, turn left right now. And so that I think will be the next step for those of us who I think are at the kind of the forefront of that, which is, right, so we've got all the stuff you need as a leader or as a new starter. How do we get the contextual information which will say, right now, this is the right thing to do, or this is what you should be doing, or this is the one piece of information that you need. Um, and that will take it from being a resource to a performance guidance system. So um, that, that's the way forwards. I sort of suspect the real threat for us is that we don't get that. As, yeah. a, as an industry, we carry on with our learning objectives and the mumbo jumbo. And, and actually some smart person from you know the Silicon Valley side, let's say, kind of catches on to that and start selling performance guidance systems, yeah. which are based on you know big databases that say, this system will tell your leaders what to do at the right time. And we're like, whoa, how, hang on, why are you buying that and not training? Well, because this works. Yeah. yeah. It, solves, it solves the problem that training has failed to, to solve. Uh, yeah. Going back, yeah. instead of making yeah. better training, it just goes to, yeah. to the source of the problem. Yeah. So Nick, we're coming to the end of the podcast. If somebody's reading your book 
uh, who works in a more traditional learning and development department and who served the traditional L&D apprenticeship, they may not know where to start. What would you recommend people do first? I think the, the one single thing that would make the most difference is um, user-centered or people-centered or human-centered design. So if you have a process where you're an order taker, as I think you've already said, where somebody's basically just giving you a set of learning objectives, have, have the courage to take a bit of a stand and say, yeah, we absolutely do want to deliver these outcomes. Let's talk about the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And we do really need to talk to people, to the people who are going to be consumers of this, if we can have any confidence that it will deliver your business outcomes. Get a little bit of license to talk to, to users as part of the design process. And that will make such a difference to, um, to what you produce. Brilliant. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. If people want to continue to follow your work, uh, to buy your book and to get in touch, how can they do so? Um, I'm at Shackleton Jones, all one word on Twitter. I blog a lot on LinkedIn. Lots of these ideas you can find expressed as, as blog posts there. And obviously it's nice if you want to buy the book as well. Um, but uh, yeah, LinkedIn or um, Twitter, two places. Wonderful. And we'll put some details in the show notes too. Thanks, Nick, David. Thank you very much. Thank you. What a great conversation. To use Nick's words, if that doesn't encourage us to challenge convention, I'm not sure what will. There's plenty in there. Uh, please do take a look at his book. Uh, I told Nick uh, before we had the conversation that it is an unscannable read because there is so much good stuff within there. Some, uh, some interesting stories that brings it to life as well as the practical application. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can tweet me at David in Learning, connect on LinkedIn or Facebook, for which you'll find the links in the show notes. Goodbye for now.